For your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my guilt, for it is great. Who is the man who fears the Lord? Him will he instruct in the way that he should choose. His soul shall abide in well-being, and his offspring shall inherit the land. The friendship of the Lord is for those who fear him, and he makes known to them his covenant. His My eyes are ever toward the Lord, for he will pluck my feet out of the net. Those are verses 11 through 15 of Psalm 25, which is the psalm appointed for today, Monday, August the 30th, 2021. You're listening to Faith Seeking Understanding, and I'm your host, John Green. Thanks for being along today. We're continuing our look at the life of Solomon here in the prayer for the dedication of the temple in 2 Chronicles 6, 32 to chapter 7, verse 7. And then in James, we're in uh, James 2, 1 to 13, and the gospel according to Mark, verse or chapter 14, verses 53 to 65. So... <clears throat> Today is my anniversary. Suzanne and I have been married since 1985, I believe that's right. <laughs> yep, 36 years. Um, so we've been married 36 years today. It's our anniversary, and so uh, shout out and happy anniversary to my wife. Um, so what we've got here at the beginning of this lesson is is Solomon has dedicated the temple. It's completed, and now he's praying at the dedication of the temple. And here, what he's praying for to begin with are foreigners. Listen to this. Likewise, when a foreigner who is not of your people, Israel, comes from a far country for the sake of your great name and your mighty hand and your outstretched arm, when he comes and prays towards this house, hear from heaven your dwelling place and do according to all for which the foreigner calls you, in order that all the peoples of the earth may know your name and fear you, as do your people, Israel, and that they may know that this house I have built is called by your name. It's a powerful statement, but but what does it have to do with today? You know, because this is one of the things that we we talk about a lot, has to do with with why people immigrate. And so here in this passage, what what Solomon's saying is is he's praying for those foreigners who have come for the sake of your great name and your mighty hand and your outstretched arm. So he's speaking specifically about those people who have come because of what they've heard about the Lord and what they've come to believe about the Lord, and then they come and pray in this place, to the Lord. And he's praying in advance that when that happens, that God would hear and do according to which all to which the foreigner calls you, because then your name will be even greater, in order that the people of the earth may know your name and fear you. Because he believes that person will go back and they'll tell their fellow countrymen about what's, what, the, what the Lord, the God of Israel, has done for them, and the power and the might of that God and the goodness of that God. And so there, there's something powerful in that, that he's praying for these foreigners who come for one specific reason, that they come because of his great name, because of what they've heard and come to believe, or at least hope they can believe, about this God, and then therefore they come and pray to that God. And so so he's saying, look, you know, it's sort of what Jesus says when the disciples, a couple of them want to come and say, hey, they're not part of us, but they're over there proclaiming you. Do you want us to stop them? And Jesus says, no, if you've done great things in my name, you won't later be able to talk bad about me. So it's that same idea that 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 there will be evangelism done by these foreigners who come to Israel and who pray to that to this God of Israel. And because they have their prayers answered. So, so that's the evangelistic thing, is, is if they come here and they meet with God 
and then they go away having fulfilled their God having fulfilled their petitions, they won't then they'll they'll then go speak well of him. And then he goes on to pray and says, If your people go out to battle against their enemies, by whatever way you shall send them, and they pray to you towards this holy city you've chosen and the house that I've built for your name, then hear from heaven and their prayer and their plea and maintain their cause. So if you send them out and they pray for you, pray to you, which is what they should be doing, if God sent them out, then then he says, listen to them, if they're obedient, in other words. But if they sin against you, for there's no one who does not sin, and you're angry with them and give them to an enemy so that they're carried away and captive to a land far or near, Yet if they turn their heart in the land to which they've been carried captive and repent and plead with you in the land of their captivity, saying, we've sinned and acted perversely and wickedly, if they repent with all their heart and with all their soul in the land of their captivity to which they've been carried captive, and they pray toward their land, which you gave to their fathers, the city that you've chosen, the house that I've built for your name, then hear from heaven your dwelling place, their prayer and their pleas, and maintain their cause and forgive your people who have sinned against you. So if they sin and you give them to an enemy, if they turn their hearts, if they repent and they pray, then hear them. And that's sort of the way that, unfortunately, it's too often the way that that we live. Because what happens is it's only when we've experienced the sort of the, the consequences of rebellion and sin that we then begin to turn. It's only after those consequences, not... Not prior to that. It's, it's, it's hard to convict us of sin. It's honestly true because we'll come up with a million different excuses for why what we did was actually okay. And, and so sometimes we have to go into that land. We have to go into a place we were never meant to be because of our sins before we actually return and repent and pray and, and, and ask God to forgive us. And then he says, now, oh, my God, let your eyes be open and your ears attentive to the prayer of this place. And now arise, O oh Lord God, and go to your resting place, you and the ark of your might. Let your priests, O Lord God, be clothed with salvation, and your saints rejoice in your goodness. O Lord God, do not turn away the face of your anointed one. Remember your steadfast love for David, your servant. So that's that's the end of that prayer. Um, As soon as Solomon finished the prayer, fire came down from heaven, consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices, and the glory of the Lord filled the temple, just as, as it had done in Exodus 40 when the dedication of the tabernacle priests couldn't enter the house of the Lord because the glory of the Lord filled the Lord's house. They weren't even even physically able to go into the temple because of the the power of the real presence of God in the Lord's house at that time. When all the people of Israel saw the fire come down and the glory of the Lord filled the temple, they bowed with their faces to the ground on the pavement and worshiped and gave thanks to the Lord, saying, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Amen and amen to that prayer, right? He is good, and his steadfast love endures forever. Then the king and all the people offered sacrifice before the Lord. Solomon offered as a sacrifice 22,000 oxen and 120,000 sheep. So the king and all the people dedicated the house of God. And then the priests stood at their posts, the Levites also, with the instruments for music to the Lord that King David had made for giving thanks to the Lord. David was head of the band. Did you hear that? With the instruments for music to the Lord that King David had made for giving thanks to the Lord. For his steadfast love endures forever. And those would have been partially that they would be singing the Psalms. For his steadfast love endures forever. Whenever David offered praises for their, by their ministry opposite them, the priests sounded trumpets and all Israel stood. 
those trumpets again would be um, not brass instruments. Those would have been the shofars. And Solomon consecrated the middle of the court that was before the house of the Lord, for there he offered the burnt offering and the fat of the peace offerings before the bronze altar Solomon had made could not hold the burnt offering and the grain offering and the fat. So he had to consecrate more space because the the altar couldn't hold it all. There was so much sacrifice, so much joy in this consecration of the first temple the people of Israel had ever had in their about 3,500-year history. It's an amazing thing that this is the first permanent-ish <laughs> place of worship that they ever had and now here we are in in the gospel lesson and the soldiers remember have arrested jesus and so they led jesus to the high priest and all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes came together the old sanhedrin and peter had followed him at a distance right into the courtyard of the high priest and he was sitting with the guards and warming himself at the fire now remember what we're told by mark is is that everybody fled including himself, John Mark, when, when he fled and he, he only had on a linen shirt kind of a thing, um, and, and it came off of him, remember, and he fled naked. And so they all fled, and then Peter followed at a distance to see what would happen next. And he's sitting now with the guards and warming himself at the fire. The chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they couldn't find any. Many bore false witness against him, but their testimony wouldn't agree. They weren't coming at the same time, so we'll hear this witness, and then this witness could corroborate, but he couldn't corroborate it. And then some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I'll destroy this temple that's made with hands, and in three days I'll build another not made with hands. Well, he didn't say, I will destroy this temple. Um, yet even their testimony didn't agree. And the high priest stood in, the, in their midst and asked Jesus, have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? And, and he's, you know, he could have said, well, they're testifying lies. And the proof is, is, is that they don't even agree with one another about what they're saying here. That could, that could have been the answer, but instead Jesus just sits there. And then the high priest asked him again, are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you'll see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. He asked him if he was the Messiah, if he was the Son of the Blessed. So if, is he the, you the Son of God? Are you the Christ, the Son of God? And Jesus says, yes, I am. And the high priest tore his garments and said, what further witness do we need? You have heard his blasphemy. What's your decision? I mean, the decision could have gone down like, we believe that too. But their hearts had been hardened. They had been hardened against him before this ever began. The, the, the one thing that they couldn't countenance or even imagine is that Jesus actually was the Christ. And so their hearts were hardened against that conclusion. So there's no chance that this group is going to stand there and say, yes, when the high priest stands and says, you've heard his blasphemy, what's your decision? So he puts it to him, not really in, in terms of only a prosecutorial statement, not in terms of, wait, do we have any witnesses that say that he might actually be the Christ? And they condemned him as deserving death, and some began to spit on him and to cover his face and to strike him, saying to him, prophesy. And the guards received him with blows. Horrible, horrible moment, the rejection of the Savior, the, rejector, the rejection of the one who would sit on David's throne the one who is the fulfillment of all the prophecies, who has done so many good works. It's actually almost beyond belief. Uh, we can't even know probably the smallest percentage of the ones that are done because we're only told 
of some of these things. And sometimes the Mark, for instance, will just lump them all together and he healed a bunch of sick people. So this man who has done all these things is now being rejected by the chief priest because he says, finally, I'm the Christ. I'm the one. He's done everything he could to possibly do to prove the truth of that statement, and now here he is being rejected. Works matter. Jesus had to do those things in order to authenticate that he was the Christ, right? I mean, they had the, as he would say in John's gospel, you have the evidence of the works before you. You got the testimony of John, you got the evidence of the works. What do you need? What more do you need? And so in the same way that it was important for Jesus to do those things, so also is it important for us to be doing the work of God. And, and James, you know, people give—James gets a really bad rap um, in, in that he, they, they say that he contradicts Paul's uh, gospel, which is that it's—I'm saved by faith alone in Christ alone. So, but James doesn't do that at all. We, we just don't like James. We don't like the fact that he calls us to live out our Christianity. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet, have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? In other words, we're all created in the image of God. We are all equal in the sight of the Lord. Now, there's a lot of teaching out there right now that, that has to do with some people are better than others, and it's called intersectionality. And, it, and it's the, you know, if you've got so, much, um, so many points for oppression points, then, then you actually have a higher place at the table, that you have more to say, and people need to shut up and listen to you because they need to check their privilege at the door. Well, that's becoming a privilege, right? I mean, you're taking privilege for yourself by claiming victim points. And, and I, I don't often talk about this kind of stuff, but, but James is saying, treat everybody exactly the same. Don't, don't prefer one over the other. We're told in the Old Testament not to prefer the poor man either. Uh, no, that, that's a biblical concept that all men are created equal. I mean, that's what our Declaration of Independence says, and that's exactly what James is saying here. We're all equal in the sight of God. And it goes back to what Solomon said, there's no one without sin, which is exactly what Paul's argument is in the book of the Romans, in the first, like, 11 chapters. His argument is, is that no one is without sin. And so we all, then, are flattened in Christianity, and we're all flattened to be the same. We're not to, be, we're not to treat anyone with partiality or preference. He says, listen, my beloved brothers, hadn't God chosen um, the, those who are poor in the world to be rich in the faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he's promised to those who love him? But you've dishonored the poor man. Aren't the rich ones the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Aren't they the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you're called? So what are you doing preferring them? But there's this human thing for so many of us that we would prefer that. And that's always going to be an issue. And we have to work against the prejudice we have. And we have to work against the idea that, well, that guy's poor because he won't work. or he won't, you know, whatever, the, whatever the thing is that we believe about that person. Well, well it, we need to be able to instruct those in that way. But, but we can't prefer one over another. But, but you see it all the time. And we're all guilty of it at some level, I believe.
If you really fulfill the royal law, according to Scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you're doing well. But if you show partiality, you're committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. Every man, every woman, every child is my neighbor. And so I've got to treat them all the same. I have to love my neighbor, whoever that neighbor may be or whatever that neighbor might be, as I love myself. He says, whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. For he who said, don't commit adultery, also said, don't murder. If you don't commit adultery, but you do murder, you become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy, and mercy triumphs over judgment. And that's absolutely true. And the, the reality is that all goes back to forgiving one another. Judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy stands as forgiveness. But, but all these things, James is calling us to action. And we all know when we read these things that the way we act and the things that we do actually matter. They're an outgrowth, an outworking of our faith that's in it. What we believe is should be exactly what we live. You should be able to match those two things one with another. We shouldn't be devoid of good works. Our lives should be filled with good works. We should love our neighbors. We have to love our neighbors actually actively, not passively. It's the same argument John makes. I mean, these these, things are all the same. And Paul constantly calls the saints to step up. You know, hey, you've got brothers suffering over in another part of the world. We need to take up a collection for them. We need to do things for them. Paul never made it just about faith that's known to no one. Nope. It's about change of life. It's about, as Paul says, transformation by the renewing of your minds. And if your mind has been renewed, then you're a different person, and you're going to want to do the things that Jesus would have you do, and you're going to want to follow him wherever he leads and do whatever he tells you to do. And that's the important thing. It was the important thing in, in Solomon's prayer. If, your people, if you send your people out to battle and they go, and while they're there they pray to you for success, then grant it to them. And then he says, but if they sin against you, if they turn away from you, and you have to cast them and give them over to their enemies— then that's a different matter. And so it does matter what we do. What we believe and what we do should be the same story.